0: Section 31 of Hinduism and Buddhism, an Historical Sketch, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shashank Jakmola. Hinduism and Buddhism, an Historical Sketch, Volume 1 by Charles Eliot. Asceticism and Knowledge. Part one. as sacrifice and ceremonial are the material accompaniments of prayer so are asceticism and discipline those of thought this is less conspicuous in other countries but in india it is habitually assumed that the study of what we call metaphysics or theology needs some kind of physical discipline and it will be well to elucidate this point before describing the beginnings of speculation that is asceticism or self-mortification holds in the religious thought and practice of india as large a place as sacrifice we hear of it as early for it is mentioned in the rigveda and it lasts longer for it is a part of contemporary hinduism just as much as prayer or worship it appears even in creeds which disavow it theoretically example given in buddhism and evidently has its roots in a deep-seated and persistent instinct footnote 163 rig veda 10th 136 and 10th 190 end footnote Tapas is often translated penance but the idea of mortification as an expiation for sins committed, though not unknown in India, is clearly not that which underlies the austerities of most ascetics. The word means literally heat, hence pain or toil, and something that its origin should be sought in practices which produced fever or tended to concentrate heat in the body. One object of tapas is to obtain abnormal powers by the suppression of desires or the endurance of voluntary tortures. There is an element of truth in this aspiration. Temperance, chastity and mental concentration are great aids for increasing the force of thought and will. The Hindu believes that intensity and perseverance in this road of abstinence and rapture will yield correspondingly increased results. The many singular phenomena connected with Indian asceticism have been imperfectly investigated, but a psychological examination would probably find that subjective results, such as visions and the feeling of flying through the air, are really produced by the discipline recommended and there may be elements of much greater value in the various systems of meditation. But this is only the beginning of tapas. To the idea that the soul, when freed from earthly desires, is best able to comprehend the divine, is superadded another idea, namely that self-mortification is a process of productive labor akin to intellectual toil just as the whole world is supposed to be permeated by a mysterious principle which can be known and subdued by the science of the sacrificing priests so the ascetic is able to control gods in nature by the force of his austerities the creative deities are said to have produced the world by tapas just as they are said to have produced it by sacrifice in hindu mythology abounds in stories of ascetics who became so mighty that the very gods were alarmed for instance ravana the demon ruler of lanka who carried off sita had acquired his power by austerities which enabled him to extort a boon from brahma thus there need be nothing moral in the object of asceticism or in the use of the power obtained the epics and dramas frequently portray ascetics as choleric and unamiable characters and modern yogis maintain the tradition though asceticism resembles the sacrifice in being a means by which man can obtain his wishes whether religious or profane it differs in being comparatively easy irksome as it may be it demands merely strength of will and not a scientific training in ritual and vedic texts Hence, in this sphere, the supremacy of the Brahman could be challenged by other castes, and an instructive legend relates how Ram slew a Shudra whom he surprised in the act of performing austerities. The lowest castes can, by this process, acquire a position which makes them equal to the highest. Footnote 164 Even the Upanishads, example given Chandogya, 3rd, 17th, and Mahanar sixty four admit that a good life which includes tapas is the equivalent of sacrifice, but this, of course, is teaching for the elect only. The Brihad and Aranya Upanishad fifth second contains the remarkable doctrine that sickness and pain, if regarded by the sufferer as tapas brings the same reward. End footnote, of the non-Brahmanic sects the jain set the highest value on tapas but chiefly as a purification of the soul and a means of obtaining an unearthly state of pure knowledge footnote one six five so too in the taithriya upanishad tapas is described as the means of attaining the knowledge of brahman third one to footnote in theory the buddha rejected it he taught a middle way rejecting alike self-indulgence and self-mortification. But even Pali Buddhism admits that such practices as the Dutangas and the more extravagant sex, for instance in Tibet, allow monks to entomb themselves in dark cells. According to our standards, even the ordinary religious life of both Hindus and Buddhists is severely ascetic it is assumed as a sine qua non that strict chastity must be observed nourishment be taken only to support life and not for pleasure that all gratification coming from the senses must be avoided and the mind kept under rigid discipline This discipline receives systematic treatment in the yoga school of philosophy, but it is really common to all varieties of Hinduism and Buddhism. All agree that the body must be subdued by physical training before the mind can apprehend the higher truths. The only question is how far asceticism is directly instrumental in giving higher knowledge. If some text speaks slightingly of it, we must remember that the life of a hermit dwelling in the words without possessions or desires might not be regarded by a Hindu as tapas, though we should certainly regard it as asceticism. It is also agreed that supernatural powers can be acquired by special forms of asceticism. These powers are sometimes treated as mere magic and spiritually worthless, but their reality is not questioned part two we have now said something of two aspects of indian religion ritual and asceticism and must pass on to the third namely knowledge or philosophy its importance was recognized by the severest ritualists they admitted it as a supplement and crown to the life of ceremonial observances and in the public estimation it came to be reputed an alternative or superior road to salvation Respect and desire for knowledge are even more intimately a part of Hindu mentality than a proclivity to asceticism or ritual. The sacrifice itself must be understood as well as offered. He who knows the meaning of this or that observance obtains his desires. Footnote 166 Any ritual without knowledge may be worse than useless. See Chandogya Upanishad first, 10 eleven end footnote nor did the brahmins resent criticism and discussion india has always loved theological argument it is the national passion the earlier upanishads relate without disapproval how kings such as Shatru of kashi pravahana jaivali and aswapati kaikeya imparted to learned brahmins philosophical and theological knowledge previously unknown to them and even women like gargi and maitri took part in theological discussions footnote one six seven see the various narratives in the chandogya brihad aranya and Koshitaki upanishads The seventh chapter of the Chandogya relating how Narad, the learned sage, was instructed by Sankat Kumara or Skanda, the god of war, seems to hint that the active military class may know the great truths of religion better than deeply read priests, who may be hampered and blinded by their learning. For Skanda and Narad, in this connection, see Bhagavad Gita, 10th, 24, 26 obviously knowledge in the sense of philosophical speculation commended itself to religiously disposed persons in the non sacerdotal castes for the same reason as asceticism whatever difficulties it might offer it was more accessible than the learning which could be acquired only under a brahman teacher although the brahmans in the interests of sacerdotal caste maintained that philosophy like ritual was a secret to be imparted not a result to be won by independent thought again and again the upanishads insist that more profound doctrines must not be communicated to any but a son or an accredited pupil and also that no one can think them out for himself yet the older ones admit in such stories as those mentioned that the impulse towards speculation came in early periods as it did in the time of the buddha largely from outside the priestly clans and was adopted rather than initiated by them Footnote 168. For the necessity of a teacher, see Kath Upanishad 2nd 8. End footnote but in justice to the brahmans we must admit that they have rarely or at any rate much less frequently than other sacerdotal corporations shown hostility to new ideas and then chiefly when such ideas like those of buddhism implied that the rites by which they gained their living were worthless Otherwise, they showed great pliancy and receptivity, for they combined Vedic rites and mythology with such systems as the Sankhya and Advaita philosophies, both of which really render superfluous everything, which is usually called religion, since, though their language is decorous, they teach that he who knows the truth about the universe is thereby saved. The best opinion of India has always felt that the way of knowledge or jnana was the true way. The favourite thesis of the Brahmins was that a man should devote his youth to study, his maturity to the duties and ceremonies of a householder, and his age to more sublime speculations. But at all periods, the idea that it was possible to know God and the universe was allied to the idea that all ceremonies, as well as all worldly effort, and indeed all active morality, are superfluous. Footnote 169 see especially the bold passage of the end of Taitriya upanishad second he who knows the bliss of brahman fears nothing he does not torment himself by asking what good have i left undone what evil have i done and footnote all alike are unessential and trivial and merit the attention only of those who know nothing higher Human feelings and interests qualified and contradicted this negative and unearthly view of religion, but still popular sentiment as well as philosophic thought during the whole period of which we know something of them in India tended to regard the highest life as consisting in rapt contemplation or insight accompanied by the suppression of desire and by disengagement from mundane ties and interests. But knowledge in Indian theology implies more intensity than we attach to the word and even some admixture of volition. The knowledge of Brahman is not an understanding of pantheistic doctrines such as may be obtained by reading the sacred books of the East in an easy chair, but a realization in all senses of personal identity with the universal spirit, in the light of which all material attachments and fetters fall away the earlier philosophical speculations of the brahmins are chiefly found in the treatises called upanishads the teaching contained in these works is habitually presented as something secret or esoteric and does not like buddhism or jainism profess to be a gospel for all footnote 170 The word Upanishad probably means sitting down at the feet of a teacher to receive secret instructions, hence a secret conversation or doctrine. footnote. Also the teaching is not systemized and has never been unified by a personality like the Buddha. It grew up in the various Parishads or communities of learned Brahmins and perhaps flourished most in northwestern India. Footnote 171. Some allusions in the older Upanishads point to this district rather than the Ganges Valley as the center of Brahmanic philosophy. Thus, Brihad Aranyaka speak familiarly of Gandhar. footnote. There is of course a common substratum of ideas, but they appear in different versions. We have teachings of Yajnavalka, of Uddalak, Aruni and other masters, and each teaching has some individuality they are merely reported as words of the wise without an attempt to harmonize them there are many apparent inconsistencies due to the use of divergent metaphors to indicate different aspects of the indescribable and some real inconsistencies due to the existence of different schools hence attempts whether indian or european to give a harmonious summary of this ancient doctrine are likely to be erroneous There are a great number of Upanishads composed at various states and not all equally revered. They represent different orders of ideas and some of the later are distinctly secretarian. Collections of 45, 52 and 60 are mentioned and the Muktika Upanishad gives a list of 108. This is the number currently accepted in India at the present day. But Schrader describes many Upanishads existing in M.S. in addition to this list and points out that though they may be modern, there is no ground for calling them spurious. Footnote 172. Kat, Adyad library. The Rig and Sama Vedas have two Upanishads each. The Yajurveda 7. All the others are described as belonging to the Atharva Veda. They have no real connection with it, but it was possible to add to the literature of the Arthava whereas it was hardly possible to make similar additions to the older Vedas. According to Indian ideas, there is no a priori objection to the appearance now or in the future of new Upanishads. All revelation is eternal and self-existent, but it can manifest itself at its own good time. Footnote 173 the dibindranath Tagore composed a work which he called the brahmi upanishad in eighteen forty eight see autobiography page one seventy the sectarian upanishads are of doubtful date but many were written between four hundred and twelve hundred a d and were due to the desire of new sects to connect their worship with the veda several are shaktists example given kaula tripura and devi and many others show shaktist influence they usually advocate the worship of a special deity such as ganesha surya rama and nresimha End footnote many of the more modern upanishads appear to be the compositions of single authors and may be called tracts or poems in the ordinary european sense but the older ones, unless they are very short, are clearly not the attempts of an individual to express his creed, but collections of such philosophical sayings and narratives as a particular school thought fit to include in its version of the scriptures. There was so, to speak, a body of philosophic folklore, portions of which each school selected and elaborated as it though best. Thus, an epilogue, providing that the breath is the essential vital constituent of a human being, is found in five ancient Upanishads. Footnote 174 Brihad Aranyaka, 6th, 1st, 8th Aranyaka, 2nd, 4th, Kosh, 3rd, 3, Prashna, 2nd, 3, Chandogya, 5th, 1. The Apologue is curiously like in Form 2, the classical Fable of the Belly and Members. End footnote The Chandogya and Brihad Aranyaka both contain an almost identical narrative of how the priest Aruni was puzzled and instructed by a king, and a similar story is found at the beginning of the Koshitaki. Footnote 175 Brihad Aranyaka, sixth 2 Chandogya, fifth, third. End footnote. The two Upanishads last mentioned also contain two dialogues in which King Ajat Shatru explains the fate of the soul after death and which differ in little except that one is rather fuller than the other. Footnote 176 Brihad Aranyaka, second, one. Kaushiki, fourth, second. End footnote so too several well-known stanzas and also quotations from the veda used with special applications are found in more than one upanishad footnote one seven seven the composite structure of these works is illustrated very clearly by the brihad aranyaka it consists of three sections each concluding with a list of teachers namely a adhyayas one and two b adhyayas three and four c adhyayas five and six the lists are not quite the same which indicates some slight difference between the sub-schools which compose the three parts and a lengthy passage occurs twice in an almost identical form the upanishad is clearly composed of two separate collections with the addition of a third which still bears the title of khila or supplement The whole work exists in two recensions. End footnote. The older Upanishads are connected with the other parts of the Vedic canon and sometimes form an appendix to a brahmana so that the topics discussed change gradually from ritual to philosophy. Footnote 178 the eleven translated in the Sacred Book of the East, volumes one and fifteen, include the oldest and most important. Footnote one seven nine. Thus the Atreya Brahmana is followed by the Atreya Aranyaka, and that by the Atreya Aranyaka Upanishad. End footnotes it would be excessive to say that this arrangement gives the genesis of speculation in ancient india for some hymns of the rigveda are purely philosophic but it illustrates a lengthy phase of brahmanic thought in which speculation could not disengage itself from ritual and was also hampered by physical ideas The Upanishads often receive such epithets as transcendental and idealistic, but in many passages, perhaps in the majority, they labor with imperfect success to separate the spiritual and material. The self or spirit is sometimes identified in man with the breath, in nature with air, ether or space at other times it is described as dwelling in the heart and about the size of the thumb but capable of becoming smaller travelling through the veins and showing itself in the pupil capable also of becoming infinitely large and one with the world's soul but when thought finds its wings and soars above these material fancies the teaching of the upanishads shares with buddhism the glory of being the finest product of the indian intellect in india the religious life has always been regarded as a journey and a search after truth even the most orthodox and priestly programme admits this there comes a time when observances are felt to be vain and the soul demands knowledge of the essence of things and though later dogmatism asserts that this knowledge is given by revelation yet a note of genuine inquiry and speculation is struck in the vedas and is never entirely silenced throughout the long procession of indian writers in well-known words the vedas ask who is the god to whom we shall offer our sacrifice who is he who is the creator and sustainer of the universe whose shadow is immortality, whose shadow is death, or, in even more daring phrases, the gods were subsequent to the creation of this universe. Who then knows whence it sprang? He who in the highest heaven is the overseer of this universe, he knows or even he does not know. Footnote 180 Rigveda 10th 1 to 1 the verses are also found in the Atharvaveda, the Vajaseni, Taitriya, maitriyani and Katka and samhitas and elsewhere. Footnote one eight one Rigveda tenth one to nine and footnotes These profound inquiries, which have probably no parallel in the contemporary literature of other nations are as time goes on supplemented though perhaps not enlarged by many others nor does confidence fail that there is an answer the truth which when known is the goal of life a european is inclined to ask what use can be made of the truth but for the hindus divine knowledge is an end and a state not a means it is not thought of as something which may be used to improve the world or for any other purpose whatever For use and purpose imply that the thing utilized is subservient and inferior to an end whereas divine knowledge is the culmination and meaning of the universe or from another point of view the annihilation of both the external world and individuality hence the hindu does not expect of his saints philanthropy or activity of any sort as already indicated the characteristic though not the only answer of india to these questionings is that nothing really exists except god or better except brahman the soul is identical with brahman the external world which we perceive is not real in the same sense it is in some way or other an evolution of brahman or even mere illusion this doctrine is not universal it is for instance severely criticised and rejected by the older forms of buddhism but its hold on the indian temperament is seen by its reappearance in later buddhism where by an astounding transformation the buddha is identified with the universal spirit Though the form in which I have quoted the doctrine above is an epitome of the Vedanta, it is hardly correct historically to give it as an epitome of the older Upanishads. Their teaching is less complete and uncompromising, more veiled, tentative and elusive and sometimes cumbered by material notions. But it is obviously the precursor of the Vedanta and the devout Vedantist can justify his system from it. Part 3 instead of attempting to summarize the Upnishads, it may be well to quote one or two celebrated passages one is from brehad aranyaka and relates how yajnavalkya when about to retire to the forest as an ascetic wished to divide his property between his two wives Kathyani, who possessed only such knowledge as women possess and maitrai who was conversant with brahman Footnote one eight two fourth five five and repeated almost verbally second four five with some omissions. My quotation is somewhat abbreviated and repetitions are omitted. End footnote. The latter asked her husband whether she would be immortal if she owned the whole world. No, he replied like the life of the rich, would be thy life, but there is no hope of immortality. Metrei said that she had no need of what would not make her immortal. Yajnavalkya proceeded to explain to her his doctrine of the Atma, the self or essence, the spirit present in man as well as in the universe. Not for the husband's sake is the husband dear, but for the sake of the Atma. Not for the wife's sake is the wife dear, but for the sake of the Atma. And not for their own sake are sons wealth brahmins, warriors worlds gods vedas and all things dear but for the sake of the atma the atma is to be seen to be heard to be perceived to be marked by him who has seen and known the atma all the universe is known he who looks for Brahmins, warriors worlds gods or vedas anywhere but in the atma loses them all As all waters have their meeting place in the sea, all touch in the skin, all tastes in the tongue, all odours in the nose, all colours in the eye, all sounds in the ear, all percepts in the mind, all knowledge in the heart, all actions in the hands, as a lump of salt has no inside nor outside and is nothing but taste, so has this Atma neither inside nor outside and is nothing but knowledge. Having risen from out these elements, it, the human soul, vanishes with them. When it has departed, after death, there is no more consciousness. Here Maitreyi professes herself bewildered, but Yajnavalkya continues, I say nothing bewildering. Verily, beloved, that Atma is imperishable and indestructible. When there is as it were duality, then one sees the other. One tastes the other, one salutes the other, one hears the other, one touches the other, one knows the other. But when the Atma only is all this, how should we see, taste, hear, touch or know another? How can we know him by whose power we know all this? That Atma is to be described by, no, no, neti, neti, he is incomprehensible. For he cannot be comprehended, indestructible, for he cannot be destroyed, unattached, for he does not attach himself, he knows no bonds, no suffering, no decay. How, O oh beloved, can one know the knower? And having so spoken, Yajnavalkya went away into the forest. In another verse of the same work, it is declared that this great unborn Atma, or Self, undecaying, undying, immortal, Fearless is indeed Brahman. It is interesting that this doctrine, evidently regarded as the quintessence of Yajnavalkya's knowledge, should be imparted to a woman. It is not easy to translate. Atma, of course, means self and is so rendered by Max Muller in this passage. But it seems to me that this rendering jars on the English ear for it inevitably suggests that the individual self and selfishness whereas Atma means the universal spirit which is self because it is the highest or only reality and being, not definable in terms of anything else. Nothing, says Yajna has any value, meaning or indeed reality except in relation to this self. Footnote 183 the sentiment is perhaps the same as that underlying the words attributed to Florence Nightingale. I must strive to see only God in my friends and God in my cats. End footnote. The whole world, including the Vedas and religion, is an emanation from him. The passage at which Maitri expresses her bewilderment is obscure, but the reply is more definite. The self is indestructible, but still it is incorrect to speak of the soul having knowledge and perception after death, for knowledge and perception imply duality, a subject and an object. But when the human soul and the universal Atma are one, there is no duality and no human expression can be correctly used about the Atma. Whatever you say of it, the answer must be neti neti. It is not like that. That is to say, the ordinary language used about the individual soul is not applicable to the Atma or to the human soul when regarded as identical with it. Footnote 184 It will be observed that he had said previously that the Atma must be seen, heard, perceived and known. This is an inconsistent use of language. End footnote This identity is stated more precisely in another passage, where first occurs the celebrated formula tat tvam asi, that art thou, or thou art it. That is, the human soul is the Atma, and hence there is no real distinction between souls. Footnote 185 Chandogya Upanishad, Sixth Footnote 186 in the language of the Upanishads, the Atma is often simply called Tat or It. And footnotes Like Yajnavalkya's teachings, the statement of this doctrine takes the form of an intimate conversation, this time between a Brahman, Uddalaka, Aruni and his son Shweta Ketu, who is twenty four years of age and having just finished his studentship is very well satisfied with himself his father remarks on his conceit and says have you ever asked your teachers what instruction by which the unheard becomes heard the unperceived perceived and the unknown known svetaketu inquires what this instruction is and his father replies As by one lump of clay, all that is made of clay is known, and the change is a mere matter of words, nothing but a name, the truth being that all is clay, and as by one piece of copper, or by one pair of nail-scissors, all that is made of copper or iron can be known, so is that instruction. Footnote 187. i.e. the differences between clay and pots, etc. made of clay. And footnote, that is to say it would seem the reality is one all diversity and multiplicity is secondary and superficial merely a matter of words in the beginning continues the father there was only that which is one without a second others say in the beginning there was that only which is not non-existence, one without a second, and from that which is not, that which is was born. But how could that which is be born of that which is not? Footnote 188. Yet the contrary proposition is maintained in the same Upanishad. Third, nineteen, one, in the Taittiriya Upanishad. Second, eight, and elsewhere. The reason of these divergent statements is, of course, the difficulty of distinguishing pure being without attributes from not-beings. End footnote. No, only that which is was in the beginning, one only without a second. It thought, may I be many, may I have offspring. It sent forth fire. Here follows a cosmogony and an explanation of the constitution of animate beings, and then the father continues. All creatures have their root in the real, dwell in the real, and rest in the real. That subtle being by which this universe subsists, it is the real, it is the Atma, and thou, Shweta art it. Many illustrations of the relations of the Atma and the universe follow. For instance, in the life, sap leaves a tree, it withers and dies. So... This body withers and dies when the life has left it, the life dies not. In the fruit of the banyan, fig tree, are minute seeds innumerable, but the imperceptible subtle essence in each seed is the whole banyan. Each example adduced concludes with the same formula. Thou art that subtle essence, and as in the Brihad Aranyakal, salt is used as a metaphor. Place this salt in water, and then come to me in the morning. The son did so and in the morning the father said, Bring me the salt. The son looked for it but found it not, for of course it was melted. The father said, Taste from the surface of the water. How is it? The son replied, It is salt. Taste from the middle. How is it? It is salt. Taste from the bottom. How is it? It is salt. The father said, Here also in this body you do not perceive the real, but there it is, that subtle being by which this universe subsists. It is the real. It is the Atma, and thou, Shvetaketu, art it. The writers of these passages have not quite reached Shankara's point of view, that the Atma is all and the whole universe mere illusion or Maya. Their thought still tends to regard the universe as something drawn forth from the Atma and then pervaded by it. But still, the main features of the later Advaita or philosophy of no duality are there. All the universe has grown forth from the Atma. There is no real difference in things, just as all gold is gold whatever it is made onto the soul is identical with this atma and after death may be one with it in a union excluding all duality even of perceiver and perceived a similar union occurs in sleep This idea is important for it is closely connected with another belief which has had far-reaching consequences on thought and practice in India, the belief namely that the soul can attain without death and as the result of mental discipline to union with Brahman. Footnote 189 The word union is a convenient but not wholly accurate term which covers several theories. The Upanishads sometimes speak of the union of the soul with Brahman or its absorption in Brahman. Example given, Maitreya Upanishad, 6th, 22, Sayujyavatam and Ashabde Nidhanam Iti. But the soul is more frequently stated to the Brahman or a part of Brahman and its task is not to affect any act of union but simply to know its own nature this knowledge is in itself emancipation the well-known simile which compares the soul to a river flowing into the sea is found in the upanishads chandogya sixth ten one mund third two Prashna, sixth five but shankara on brahma s one fourth twenty one to twenty two evidently feels uneasy about it from his point of view The soul is not so much a river as a bay which is the sea, if the landscape can be seen properly. End footnote. This idea is common in Hinduism, and though Buddhism rejects the notion of union with the Supreme Spirit, yet it attaches importance to meditation and makes Samadhi or rapture the crown of the perfect life. In this, as in other matters, the teaching of the Upanishads is manifold and unsystematic compared with later doctrines. The older passages ascribe to the soul three states corresponding to the bodily conditions of waking, dream sleep, and deep dreamless sleep, and the Brihad Aranyaka affirms of the last. Fourth, three, thirty-two. This is the Brahma's world this is his highest world this is his highest bliss all other creatures live on a small portion of that bliss but even in some upanishads of the second stratum we find added a fourth state katurtha or more commonly turiya in which the bliss attainable in deep sleep is accompanied by consciousness this theory and various practices founded on it develop rapidly footnote 190 mandukya upanishad calls the fourth state ekatma Sara, founded solely on the certainty of its own self and Gorapada says that in it there awakes the eternal which neither dreams nor sleeps kar first fifteen see also third thirty-four and thirty-six and footnote part four The explanation of dreamless sleep as supreme bliss and Yajnavalkya's statement that the soul after death cannot be said to know or feel may suggest that union with Brahman is another name for annihilation. But that is not the doctrine of the Upanishads, though a European perhaps might say that the consciousness contemplated is so different from ordinary human consciousness that it should not bear the same name. In another passage, Yajnavalkya explains himself when he does not know yet he is knowing though he does not know for knowing is inseparable from the knower because it cannot perish but there is no second nothing else different from him that he could know footnote one nine one brihad aranyaka fourth three thirty three end footnote a common formula for brahman in the later philosophy is sakidananda being thought and joy footnote 192 cf bradley appearance and reality page 244 the perfect means the identity of idea and existence attended also by pleasure end footnote this is just a summary of the earlier teaching we have already seen how the atma is recognized as the only reality its intellectual character is equally clearly affirmed Thus the Brihad Aranyaka third seven two three says there is no seer beside him, no hearer beside him, no perceiver beside him, no knower beside him. This is thyself, the ruler within the immortal. Everything distinct from him is subject to pain this idea that pain and fear exist only as far as man makes a distinction between his own self and the real self is eloquently developed in the division of the Taittiriya upanishad called the chapter of bliss he who knows brahman it declares which exists which is conscious which is without end as hidden in the depth of the heart and in the farthest space he enjoys all blessing in communion with the omniscient brahman he who knows the bliss Anandam, of that Brahman from which all speech and mind turn away, unable to reach it, he never fears. Footnote 193 Taittriya Upanishad, 2nd, 1-9, C2, IB, 3rd, 6 and footnote Bliss is obtainable by union with Brahman, and the road to such union is knowledge of Brahman, That knowledge is often represented as acquired by tapas or asceticism, but this, though repeatedly enjoined as necessary, seems to be regarded, in the nobler exposition at least, as an indispensable schooling rather than an efficacious by its own virtue. Sometimes the topic is treated in an almost Buddha spirit of reasonableness and depreciation of self-mortification for its own sake. Thus, Yachnavalkya says to Gargi, Whoever without knowing the imperishable one offers oblations in this world, sacrifices, and practices asceticism even for a thousand years, his work will perish. Footnote 194 Brihad Aranyaka 3rd, 8, 10 C2, 6th, 2, 15. Speaking of those who in the forest worship the truth with faith. End footnote And in a remarkable scene described in the Chandogya Upanishad, the three sacred fires decide to instruct a student who is exhausted by austerities and tell him that Brahman is life, bliss, and space. Footnote 195 Chandogya Upanishad ten five, End footnote Analogous to the conception of Brahman as bliss is the description of him as light or light of lights a beautiful passage says to the wise who perceive him brahman within their own self belongs eternal peace not to others they feel that highest unspeakable bliss saying this is that how then can i understand it has it its own light or does it reflect light no sun shines there nor moon nor stars nor these lightnings much less this fire when he shines, everything shines after him. By his light, all the world is lighted. Footnote 196. Ithikas Katha Upanishad 2nd, verse 13, 15. Also in the Shvetashvatara and Mundaka Upanishads, and there are similar words in the Bhagavad Gita. This is that means that the individual soul is the same as Brahman. End footnote. In most of the texts which we have examined the words, Brahman and Atma are so impersonal that they cannot be replaced by God. In other passages, the conception of the deity is more personal. The universe is often said to have been emitted or breathed forth by Brahman. By emphasizing the origin and result of this process separately, we reach the idea of the maker and master of the universe commonly expressed by the word ishwar lord but even when using this expression hindu thought tends in its subtler moments to regard both the creator and the creature as illusions in the same sense as the world exists there also exists its creator who is an aspect of brahman but the deeper truth is that neither is real there is but one who neither makes nor is made footnote 197 the Nresimhottara tapaniya Upanishad, first, says that Ishvara is swallowed up in the Turiya. Footnote. In a land of such multiform theology, it would be hazardous to say that monotheism has always arisen out of pantheism, but in the speculative schools where the Upanishads were composed, this was often its genesis. The older idea is that a subtle essence pervades all nature and the deities who rule nature this is spiritualized into the doctrine of Brahman attributed to Yajnavalkya and it is only by a secondary process that this Brahman is personified and sometimes identified with a particular god such as Shiva the doctrine of the personal Ishvara is elaborated in Shvetashvatara Upanishad of uncertain date footnote 198 but still ancient and perhaps anterior to the christian era End footnote. it celebrates him in hymns of almost mohammedan monotheism let us know that great lord of lords the highest god of gods the master of masters the highest above has god as lord of the world who is to be glorified footnote six seven and footnote. but this monotheistic fervor does not last long without relapsing into the familiar pantheistic strain thou art woman says the same upanishad and thou art man thou art youth and maiden thou as an old man totterest along on thy staff thou art born with thy face turned everywhere thou art the dark blue bee thou the green parrot with the red eyes thou art the thunder cloud the seasons and the seas thou art without beginning because thou art infinite thou from whom all worlds are born footnote 200 Shvetambara upanishad fourth three max miller's translation the commentary attributed to sanskara explains nila patanga as brahmara but Dison seems to think it means a bird and footnote end of section number thirty one